Hello, hello. I'm Dr. Jason Lee, clinical immunologist and allergist. And for my last podcast of this season, I have with me Dr. Samir Grover, a gastroenterologist at St. Michael's Hospital. And I have Ishi Perzada, uh, emergency doctor extraordinaire who's been on the front lines with COVID-19 and uh, you know doing a lot to help us get acquire PPE and other uh, community activism. Uh, he also happens to uh, have a uh, quite pronounced seasonal allergies. And so I thought the topic that's fitting for today in this climate is COVID-19 and allergies, which is, you know, what I've been talking to a lot of media about. So welcome to my podcast, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for my listeners, they have their own podcast. We're going to be, I'm going to be a guest on their podcast uh, talking about uh, COVID-19 immunology uh, after this. But, uh, you know, um, so without further ado, you know, Kashif, you have a lot of allergies. Tell me about your symptoms. So I have, uh, every morning I have COVID-19 symptoms. So <laughs> the self-screening symptoms. I have a runny nose, um, you know, um, uh, sometimes a sore throat and um, uh, coryza as well. So it's, um, and usually I have to take a regular dose of antihistamines. I use um, non-sedating, um, uh, reactive every day almost every day uh, as a prn okay so uh, does that effectively control your symptoms for the most part uh sometimes i have to take i take the 10 milligrams and sometimes i have to take the prescription strength 20 milligrams okay but for the most part it does um, i haven't used the nasal sprays in a long time okay interesting yeah you know this is uh what i struggle with because um when you look at the antihistamine studies, uh, the vast majority are actually uh, uncontrolled on antihistamines in terms of their uh, allergic uh, rhinitis and conjunctivitis symptoms. So you're, you're actually in the fortunate minority of patients who benefit from even just doubling up on the antihistamines. So uh, you know the vast majority uh, find that that's insufficient. So you've got to go up on the treatment ladder, which you know, you, as you alluded to, uh, nasal steroids and other nasal treatments um, you know, other adjunctive treatments like uh, allergen immunotherapy in some cases and uh, eye drops in, in some. So ocular eye drops come in many forms, antihistamines, uh, nasal decongestants, uh, sorry, decongestants and vasoconstrictive as well. Um, Samir, do you have allergies yourself as well or? Yeah, I, I sort of have the exact same thing. This time of year is absolutely abysmal for me. I wake up every morning feeling like I'm, uh, I'm congested, but I have very bad uh, conjunctivitis symptoms also in the mornings. I try um, antihistamine eye drops, which work very well for the conjunctivitis, but uh, the post-nasal drip that's allergic is, uh, it keeps me up at night quite a bit. And every morning again, I go to the hospital and I'm you know, answering the screening questions and it's hard to differentiate between you know, whether I'm actually screening in or whether I, it's just my allergy symptoms. Yeah, I, I, it, it is very difficult. So, you know, when, when every like media outlet pretty much asked me to answer this question. It's really hard because, you know, even my own professional societies, the American College, American Academy, uh, and now we've got the global bodies weighing in on this. Uh, there's so much overlap and there's so much heterogeneity in presentation of both COVID-19 uh, as well as uh, allergic uh, symptoms. And, you know, it, it gets even more complicated when someone has uh, allergic asthma, so allergy-driven asthma. So how do you know the shortness of breath is really from this or that? Um, you know, one of the things that both of you guys mentioned is that 
you know, you, you know what your symptoms are and you've had them for a number of years. And I, I suspect a very similar pattern around this time of the year, right? So for both of you, I suspect you may have uh, tree allergies, um, uh, which, you know, typically starts March, April, May uh, in, in Canada and Ontario, at least. So, you know, that, that's the historical history is, is kind of important. But as you know, and in, in the screening questionnaire for COVID, it, it doesn't really get into these specifics or nuances. So um, it does really become difficult. So I can tell you what I've learned uh, globally from my colleagues. And in a lot of countries, they are actually testing every single patient coming into the hospital or in some other cases, in other countries, they're testing every single patient coming into a respiratory clinic, uh, both as sort of active testing and surveillance, but also to really uh, protect the, um, the frontline staff and the healthcare professionals working with these patients. Uh, what, what are your guys' thoughts on, uh, you know, on, on more you know, liberalizing testing for, for this to, to help us really distinguish within you know, allergies COVID, it's really hard to tell sometimes. I think it's a, it's a great idea. It's just, I think the availability is not that great here. Like um, there's, you know, I think a critical shortage of the reagents. Um, you know, I think the regulators have been slow to approve new testing uh, as well. I think, you know, South Korea is probably the model for that in how they broaden testing to such a large part of the population. And I wish we could get there. Yeah, most of the uh, testing numbers from the Middle East are much better as well. Um, and, uh, you know, other smaller countries, albeit smaller, like New Zealand and Iceland, as you know, have done uh, quite a bit more testing per uh, capita as well. I think Iceland tested everyone. Uh, and, um, you know, Germany tested a lot more per capita as well. Um, would you think uh, in, in your setting, Samir, that in, in a GI clinic, you know, there's controversy oh. over what's aerosolizing or whatnot, whatnot. and, uh, you know, there's even still debate on whether you know, the plain old seasonal flu is, uh, you know, is it really droplet or is it, is it airborne? Um, so believe it or not, that's still kind of controversial what the mode of transmission is there. Uh, do you yeah. think any, everyone coming in for endoscopy should be maybe tested as well? Oh, I, I think no question. I think anybody coming in for, um, uh, and so my world in gastroenterology, we do endoscopic procedures, as you know, and exactly like you mentioned, um, there's many reasons as to why um, aerosolization can take place. For example, when you look inside the stomach, patients will end up coughing, but also when you have uh, gastric secretions, which can contain uh, COVID-19 within them, we have uh, buttons and ports that are very close to the face when we do endoscopy. So when we suction across that material, it's possible some of it may aerosolize and go on to uh, masks and during near the face. Um, so it would be brilliant if we could use testing as, a, as part of the risk stratification strategy like have all patients coming in for endoscopy, create a, a grid as to whether they need to have their endoscopies done uh, soon or uh, not so soon based upon uh, severity symptomatology, and then use testing as part of the algorithm to determine what their risk is with respect to uh, coming into the hospital in terms of infectivity. Yeah, uh, for, for sure. And I imagine like, you know, having had an EGD uh, myself, uh, you know, by you, in fact, uh, I found that, uh, you know, there's a lot of belching with the insufflation and, uh, you know, there's, you know, there definitely is a lot of stuff coming out of the mouth, right? And, you know, the mouth and the, the larynx and the esophagus are very closely uh, in proximity to one another. So, um, you know, it, I, I, yeah. 
we've got uh, some of the same uh, uh, technologies that you've been seeing inside uh, the lay press as well as inside the medical literature to try to prevent aerosolization, plastic boxes and fancy masks and negative pressure boxes. We're starting to use some of that stuff in endoscopy as well. But uh, the much simpler solution would be just to risk stratify the patient, including testing. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Kashif, when, when you're going to emerge with uh, the, uh, you know, you, you said you mentioned non-sedating antihistamine, um, you, you know, it, it luckily does the job for you in controlling your symptoms. Um, but I imagine every now and then you must uh, still feel kind of itchy uh, and, you know, wanting to touch your face and, and rub your nose or, you know, do the whole allergic salute thing, uh, kind of like this. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, do you find it's, it's, it's challenging for you to assess patients who may actually be in a similar situation as yourself? Maybe they've got uh, you oh. know, allergies, maybe it's newer onset or, or a complication. Oh, definitely. Like these days, if you sneeze and at work, like uh, everyone's going to do a double take, right? Or if you have, you know, uh, rhinorrhea as well, that's going to be something that, you know, it's going to very be very concerning to your colleagues and patients. So it's COVID has definitely complicated things a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's unclear if uh, allergies predispose you to uh, COVID-19, but in, in general, uh, any atopic condition does make you more susceptible to and more predisposed to infections with uh, the virus. What's the mechanism behind that? Like it, um, is it your mucosal membranes are more susceptible? Is that? Is that yeah. And then it just seems like you have a sort of an aberrant uh, immune response that's not ideal. So ideally in the, in the beginning of stages of a viral infection, you want a high degree of interferon and TNF. Uh, but when you have, uh, you know, overactivation of uh, sort of what we call type 2 inflammation, uh, which get, leads to atopy, you have an aberrant response where you don't have as much interferon. In fact, you have other cytokines like IL-4, 13, and 5 uh, that, you know, is not uh, necessarily that helpful to clear the virus. So uh, for asthma patients, for example, and allergic asthma specifically, they tend to have uh, lingering uh, virus uh, even when they're asymptomatic. And, uh, you know, this may be responsible for you know, chronic post-viral cough and other things like that. So, uh, and, the, and, you know, getting the infection itself, yeah, your conditions, you know, having that constant uh, drip and mucus and, uh, you know, the nasal passage is not flowing optimally and air drying. Uh, it sets up the conditions for, uh, you know, both bacteria and viruses to kind of get a foothold more easily. So, the relative risk does actually go up uh, quite a bit just from having allergies. And that's why you see uh, sinusitis as a frequent complication, for example. It's actually interesting. Like, so um, would you recommend prophylactic antihistamine use? Um, yeah. So, you know, what, what are uh, some of our societies and, you know, what I've been uh, advising patients um, is to, you know, optimally manage their uh, pharmacotherapy if they're only on pharmacotherapy to try to minimize and control their allergy symptoms. And in allergies, it's always easier to prevent the onset of symptoms than to deal with them retroactively. So, you know, retroactively, if you take your antihistamines after already having symptoms, you know that they tend to be less effective, for example. Jason, what do you think about um, uh, asthma and inhaled steroids and COVID-19 risk? Is there enough of a systemic absorption of inhaled steroids to increase risk of COVID-19 in patients with asthma? So uh, thankfully, I don't have to speculate too much on this because people much smarter than myself at our global, uh, so we have a body called GINA, Global Initiative for Asthma. Uh, the CDC 
uh, the American Academy and the American College, they've all uh, reviewed and actively surveilling the uh, evidence. So I get daily updates from the, from the American Academy, for example. Um, so right now, uh, it does seem that the most important factor for any asthmatic is to make sure that their asthma is controlled and to continue all their medications. But there's not enough systemic absorption to affect things uh, in an adverse way. And if you have COVID-19 with asthma, you continue all the asthma treatments uh, as is. So, you know, one of the things I want to really lay, I just did a webinar on this yesterday, is that all asthma treatments should be continued and all step up therapy uh, for asthma if they have an exacerbation, be it from uh, regular coronavirus, coronavirus or COVID-19, you step up the therapy as part of your uh, action plan. So, yeah, so I don't want anyone to uh, be fearful. And again, you want to have your asthma controlled because having asthma controlled always results in better outcomes when you get any infection. Well, it's very akin to what we do in inflammatory bowel disease, where you know, we don't take people off of uh, uh, immunomodulators or off of biologics for fear of the fact that they may flare and may require steroids and increase their risk. Yeah. yeah I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. For in my field as well, you know, none, none of the biologics that we use in asthma, uh, uh, you know, predispose people to worse outcomes with uh, viral infections. So uh, again, we've, uh, you know, for the biologic patients, we always advise continuing everything. Uh, as much as possible, because I see more of them as regulators. In fact, one of, our, one of the biologics we use, again, the common misconception is that these are immunosuppressive, but one of the biologics we use uh, called omalizumab, we actually have the opposite evidence that it actually restores the interferon uh, response to uh, viruses and in and, and setting of an infection. So they're actually able to clear and more effectively deal with infections uh, rather than the opposite. Interesting. Is that something that, are they doing a trial for that of the, you know, hundreds of trials? Uh, yeah, so uh, we were just talking before this, there's, a, there's many trials registered on clinicaltrial.gov uh, looking at this, but uh, some of the computational modeling studies, they're not actually done on patients, but there's apparently AI-driven uh, programs that look for different targets that can be helpful in the aberrant immune response of some of the more serious COVID patients. Uh, they find that maybe some of these can, biologics that I use for asthma may be helpful. Uh, you know, one of them was uh, Dupilumab, for example. But uh, in any event, I, I digress. Um, so, Kashif, like, you know, when you see a patient in the ER, uh, or Samir, you see a patient in the endoscopy suite who has maybe these symptoms, like, you know, what are, are there any extra precautions that you would take or any uh, advice that you would give these patients beforehand? So I may I may defer to Kashif just because uh, we're really not seeing many patients in endoscopy at all right now, trying to avoid endoscopy as much as possible unless it's sort of emergency and patients are, or, or, or patients are confirmed COVID negative. So I'll, I'll pass to Kashif for this. Well, any um, upper respiratory symptoms are screened into like a COVID kind of zone. Uh, and then we don, um, well, we're treating as if everyone has it now. Um, so our standard baseline PPE is um, eye protection, which is usually a face shield or um, surgical mask with face shield built in, uh, surgical mask, um, hair protection, and then a level two gown. So that's like the yellow isolation gown is a little thicker and gloves. So that's what everyone's wearing at all times now in, in our merge. If there's aerosolizing procedures, uh, we use an N95 mask and... Um, a uh, level four gown, and um, and then that has to be changed after the procedure. Right now, um, I think most people are wearing an N95 throughout their entire shift. Just you know, I think a lot, 
anyone who went through SARS, you know, that was what the standard was at that time. And I think any doctor who went through that just wears it, even though the science says it's droplet spread. There are still aerosolizing events that could be near you, like a cough or um, CPR or things like that. So as a precaution, most of my colleagues are wearing an N95 at all times. Yeah, and you know that I think that's wise and, and very prudent. Uh, you know, particularly when someone has some of the overlapping symptoms. Um, it's interesting when I look at the. Uh, I really looked into this droplet airborne thing, and again, you know, it's it's it probably droplet aerosolization in some cases. Uh, but, you know, the science is not so clear cut in this as, as people like to think. Uh, like I said, even for influenza, we don't even know for sure. <laughs> there's, a, there's an active debate going on whether that's airborne or droplets. So uh, I think it's, you know, good to err on the side of caution, especially, you know, when, uh, when lives are at stake. Exactly. Like you wonder sometimes if the guidelines were made with PPE shortages in mind. So <laughs> yeah. As a point we've actually made on our podcast before is that... Okay. Um, the tremendous amount of risk that's being taken by uh, uh, organizations that are taking PPE conservation as part of their safety strategy, as opposed to making PPE guidelines that are overprotective, that are liberal with respect to procedures. Yeah. Um, so if there's an underlying uh, message I want to leave every uh, listener with is, you know, have your asthma uh, and uh, allergy symptoms controlled uh, because again, it will maybe have some indirect effects in preventing an infection, making you less susceptible. And uh, it'll also make it so that if you do have, uh, if you do unfortunately catch COVID-19, your symptoms uh, may not be worse if your asthma is controlled. And that, you know, uh, hopefully, um, you know, the, the therapies that you're currently on are enough to control your symptoms. Because uh, once you develop new symptoms, then you'll see a change as well, which will be easier to uh, suspect COVID. I don't know if, uh, if you guys would agree with that, but that's kind of my thoughts there. Terrific. Okay, great. Thank you guys very much. Well, thank you.